Hey there friends and welcome back to another episode of the Euphoria Health podcast. For anyone joining in the conversation for the first time, firstly welcome and thank you for jumping on board and secondly my name is Matt Sapala. I am your host. I aim to add value to your life through the podcast by having thought-provoking conversations with doctors, nutritionists, athletes, health professionals, business owners, and anyone who has an inspirational story. A little bit of background about myself. I'm a qualified personal trainer, and I'm currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. I'm extremely passionate about holistic health, longevity, and sustainability. My main message and why I started the podcast was to help educate and inspire you guys in creating healthful decisions each and every day, decisions that add years to your life. My whole coaching philosophy and everything that I preach through the podcast is not wanting to be a quick fix. I want to be your only fix. This week, I was fortunate enough to sit down with Dr. Matthew Nakra, who is a naturopathic doctor who specializes in preventative medicine, in particular, the realm of nutrition science. This is an extremely complex field and hard to navigate around for the general consumer, but Dr. Nagra bridges the gap and makes this information easy to digest. Pardon the pun. Dr. Nagra is an absolute wealth of knowledge and he's playing an important role in the plant revolution. I'm blown away by his dedication to science and drive to know more. In today's chat, Dr. Nagra and I discuss dietary patterns associated with a decreased risk of chronic disease. We zoom in on saturated fat consumption and relevant risk factors associated with this and how it's closely linked with the global leading cause of death, cardiovascular disease. We also chat about the ketogenic diet, including the implementation of a Western keto diet, which has evolved steering further away from the clinical definition of a ketogenic diet. We speak about its role in medicine. We also chat at length about why someone would choose to adopt this dietary pattern. We speak about its role in type two diabetes and why it is the quote unquote sexy approach to treating this condition. We speak at length about a metabolic ward study and how a ketogenic dietary pattern was compared to a plant-based dietary pattern. Finally, we discuss at length about the practicality and adherence of this dietary pattern versus a plant-based model. We also graze the surface on the topic of antibiotic resistance, which is a topic that I'd love to know more about and something that is quite alarming to see how fast and how close we are to this becoming a really, really big global issue. This podcast was extremely thought-provoking and I personally learned so much from it. Dr. Nagra, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the Euphoria Health community on the show this week. A little side note, friends, this podcast wasn't aimed to demonize folks who are currently adopting a ketogenic dietary pattern. This chat was so insightful and wanted to provide you guys with the most up-to-date research explaining where the science sits on the Western Keto versus a plant-based dietary pattern and the relevance for chronic disease prevention. Sorry about the slightly longer introduction this week, folks. I hope you enjoy the next 60-odd minutes of Dr. Nagra's wisdom and I'll see you all on the other side. Dr. Matthew Nagra, welcome to the Euphoria Health Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Matt, I've been following your content for over a year now, and I'm absolutely blown away by the things that you're sharing. And I I really appreciate how you're bridging the gap between science that is somewhat hard to digest for the general consumer, and you're making it, pun intended, easily digestible for for the consumer. So firstly, starting off by saying thank you so much for the work that you do. Thanks for the the message. Um, yeah, that's the goal. It, it's uh, I feel like sometimes I still might confuse some people, but I, I try my best to to make it you know easily understandable. Change up wording, you know, whatever needs to be done to to get the message across. And I'm sure we'll dive into it a little bit later on. But it is extremely hard for the general consumer to navigate around this this field of nutrition science. So. Yeah, making it easy is is a big task in itself. But you're doing a great job. So. Um, I'm really excited for the conversation today. Now, Matt, before we get into the belly of the conversation, I'd love to 
talk a little bit about what life is like for a naturopathic doctor in a global pandemic and how's that been over the past 18 months to two years for you? Yeah, I mean, at first, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen with the virus. And then once it, you know, came over here and started taking off, uh, we actually did shut our clinic for a bit. And, you know, out of that, I think something good came of it because, you know, it, it really it forced us to expand in certain ways. Like I started doing telemedicine. So seeing patients online now, they don't need to be in the office. I can see people who are in interior British Columbia or on Vancouver Island, where I'm from, or, you know, all, all of these different areas uh, around here versus only, you know, here in the city. So that actually expanded my practice and I've kept it throughout ever since even we reopened the clinic. Um, so that's been good. But I would say the biggest thing for me was I was actually involved in the um, COVID-19 response uh, immunization clinics here. Uh, so I was, I was working, you know, 12 hour shifts, two or three times a week on top of my, you know, clinical practice, um, uh, immunizing people all day. So, you know, it, it was, that was one of the best, if not the best experiences of my professional uh, career so far. Um, it was just incredible to work with so many people from different fields. You know, we had uh, emergency medicine doctors, we had uh, retired anesthesiologists and like hearing all the stories from when they used to practice or, you know, all the nurses, the medical students teaching them about, you know, the emergency med kits and, and how to deal with people who might, you know, faint or if we're worried about allergic reactions. And, and it was just, yeah, it was, it was so much, um, or so many great experiences that I wouldn't have gotten in my own practice, uh, you know, the, the types of patients that I see. And if you're talking about professional development, there is no better place to do that than during a global, global pandemic yeah. with a room full of doctors. So that's awesome. Exactly. I'm sure that experience, you know, looking, looking back on it now, when we're starting to sort of creep out of, of the, the big portion of the impacts that COVID-19 had, in the US and Canada, looking back on it now, I'm sure these experiences in hindsight are, are really valuable and we can start to appreciate the, the hidden gems behind adversity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on the negativity a lot of times, but uh, there's so much, I think, positive that has come out of our response to these you know, pressures that we were put under. Definitely. And it's such a big breakthrough in science, being able to develop a, a vaccination that is that is um, efficient and, and it's working and it's doing its job in, in saving lives and preventing the spread in such a short amount of time. It, it's incredible breakthrough for science. And it just goes to show that when the greatest minds in the world can come together, we can achieve almost anything. Absolutely, 100% agree. Now, Dr. Nagra, you touched on it a little bit before, but for the listeners that have never heard about you before, tell us a little bit about what your background is. Yeah, so um, obviously, I'm, you know, primarily focused in the nutrition space. Um, I've been interested in nutrition since I was quite young, about 15 is when I started really getting into it, uh, kind of exploring plant based, not not like 100% plant based or vegan or anything like that, but exploring more plant based diet patterns. And, and uh, you know, first thing I got rid of was actually dairy and then started to, to crop up my diet even, even more. And I just I felt better. And I just, you know, I, I wanted to ultimately after, after, you know, feeling better, losing weight, my skin clearing up and all that, I wanted to research more into this. And, and, you know, after seeing that, oh, you know, there is research behind this and, and there is research behind, you know, how we can affect our disease risk or improve our health if we're already suffering with certain diseases um, by, by changing our diets, um, I want to help others do the same. And so that's what ultimately drove me into this profession of naturopathic medicine, where yes, I can prescribe medications. I was talking about, you know, I was immunizing and all of that as well. Uh, but I can have a large focus on nutrition and lifestyle, uh, which is what I use a lot of in my practice. Um, I went to the university of Victoria where I got an undergraduate degree in uh, microbiology um, our bachelor's degree in microbiology. And then I went on to the Boucher Institute where I did my uh, naturopathic medical studies. Uh, and then outside of that, like I have been, you know, strictly vegan for about 10 and a half years. I volunteer at an animal sanctuary. Um, I am you know, motivated by the environmental effects of our, our uh, dietary patterns as well. Um, and I, I'm an athlete. So that's another thing that I consider when I'm talking about diet is, you know, I, I don't want to just, uh, I know a lot, there's a lot of focus on like blue zones and stuff, you know, too, where they're walking regularly. They're, they're just, you know, pretty lightly active. They have a low calorie uh, diet typically, 
for lower calorie diets typically, I want to make sure that uh, when I'm discussing diet, I'm also keeping in mind those people with higher caloric needs and, and, uh, you know, uh, wanting to build muscle and perform at their best. Yeah, definitely. I really love that journey. And I guess just zooming back in on when you said that you were 15 and you wanted to explore this realm of nutrition, I think that's really valuable. And a big part of my work is trying to help people understand what sort of foods are doing to their body and how these certain foods are making them feel. And I feel like we've grown up in a society where it's been acceptable to put a cover over these symptoms that are making us feel this way from foods that we're, we're consuming. So trying to um, develop a connection between foods we're consuming and how we're feeling the next day, I think is really important for the general consumer to understand as a starting point. Yeah. And I, I spoke with, um, actually Simon Hill plant proof, uh, to those people who, who follow him, uh, kind of about that. Like we don't have a lot of research on these more acute changes, you know, that you might notice just as far as how you feel after a meal and that sort of thing. But definitely anecdotally, uh, there's a lot of you know claims out there about how people just feel lighter and and uh and uh you know just uh, they're able to move more after a meal and and i think uh, that's an area that would be interesting to study a bit more down the road yeah absolutely i love that and i'm a big fan of simon's work i actually recorded a podcast a couple of weeks ago with him and yeah that was awesome Awesome. as well now matthew i want to zoom in a little bit on the ketogenic diet which is a a little bit of our main focus for the podcast today for people that have never heard of it i'm sure there's not many people that would have never heard of this diet before but can you explain essentially what that is and why would someone choose to adopt the traditional dietary pattern of a ketogenic diet yeah so um actually kind of hit the why first so um the keto diet was originally um, designed for people with intractable epilepsy so this is epilepsy that is not responsive to medications and it was often used for like children uh, in particular um and the uh medical ketogenic diet or not, i should say it works for for that case it does work uh, but for um, a medical keto diet it's basically a four to one ratio of fats to or grams of fats to um carbohydrates and protein combined. So it's a very high fat, very low carb and protein diet. And the reason for that is, is to enter ketosis where your body is using ketones as the primary fuel source rather than glucose or carbohydrates. Um, You need to keep both the carbs low, obviously, but you also need to keep the protein relatively low uh, because protein can be converted to carbohydrates. Um, So that's the medical version of keto. Now it's kind of expanded. I'd say the definition is expanded a bit. Um, now that typically a ketogenic diet, you're looking at about 70% of calories from fat, 20% from protein, 10% from carbs, usually maxing out around, you know, 50 grams or so of carbohydrates per day, but some go even lower, like 20 grams of carbs per day. You can still enter ketosis. It might take a little bit longer with, uh, you know, slightly higher carb intakes versus the really, really low carb intake. So, I mean, at, on the fast end, you might be able to enter ketosis in as little as a couple of days, or it might take a week or even two weeks, you know, depending on, on, uh, the individual and, and where your carbohydrate t- intake is at. But now when people are doing that kind of modified keto diet or the, the non-medical version of the keto diet, uh, it's usually for purposes of weight loss or, uh, diabetes to, you know, flatline your blood sugar. So you're not getting those uh, spikes, um, or, you know, in some cases people are trying it for like cancer prevention or treatment. And we can get into, you know, the research around that, but it's, it's very weak and, and possibly even kind of dangerous to you know recommend it in that sense as well. But, um, those are kind of the general ideas on what a ketogenic diet is. Yeah, I'd love to explore the, the cancer prevention side of things in terms of the ketogenic diet. That's not something that I'm I'm aware of at the moment. So I'd love to pick it back. Yeah. So um so you know there's this widely held belief that um cancers are fueled by carbohydrates or fueled by sugar. And you know, if you cut out the sugar, you're gonna starve the cancers and, and that. And then there are some very, very small trials on using a ketogenic diet alongside other therapies like chemotherapy for certain types of cancer, specifically um, like brain cancers called uh, glioblastoma. I believe that's a specific one. I could be, could be wrong, but I'm just off the top of my head. Um, but anyways, there is some research, very limited, showing that alongside chemo, there might be some added benefit. 
people then go on to think that keto alone is, is some like powerful tool when it, it's not. And they have to remember that that was, those are very small trials for a specific type of cancer. We need a lot more research than that before we consider it as an effective tool. Um, on top of that, this whole idea that um, cancers are fueled by carbohydrates, well, certain cancers might actually be fueled by ketones. Um, and these uh, like ketogenic diets, especially high saturated fat diets, um, could actually really negatively impact certain cancers like breast cancers, for example. Um, so it's, it's kind of extrapolating these very limited results to just cancer. Like cancer is a huge, broad spectrum of, of you know, illnesses um, with kind of similar pathophysiologies. So there are big, big issues with the stretches that people are, are making with the regard to the science. It's really hard to identify what is actually working in, in that point of view as well. If you're utilizing yeah. a ketogenic diet alongside chemotherapy, like it's so hard to develop a portion of what's doing its job. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can't recall, if, I'm, I'm sure they had a you know control group that was just, uh, just the chemo, but even then the, if, if there were any benefit, small trial, and uh and specific type of cancer so uh, there are you know other issues there i think a little bit closer to home and why a lot of people would choose to adopt a adopt a ketogenic diet would be because of its weight loss claims and yeah. don't get me wrong like people do lose weight initially from that but the sustainability and the practicality is questionable of this sort of approach from your experience um why do you, why do people lose weight initially from adopting a ketogenic diet and why is it extremely hard to adopt this lifestyle for the rest of their life yeah um well for in the short term yes you can experience weight loss um there's you know something called glycogen so when we eat carbohydrates we store it as glycogen we don't preferentially store it as fat it gets stored in say your muscles or your liver as glycogen and then that gets broken down as energy when we need it for activities or just for living you know existing um and glycogen holds on to water as well so when you're not eating carbohydrates you're going to deplete your glycogen stores and you're going to get rid of all that water as well so you, you might actually be just dumping your your you know fluid weight um now that's not to say that you aren't also cutting fat. I'm sure that you know a lot of people adopting ketogenic diets are also losing body fat because they're probably eating less calories. And uh, whenever you are cutting entire, not just food groups, but entire macronutrients essentially out of your diet, you're going to really limit your diet, and it's going to be more difficult to overeat on that. Plus, on a ketogenic diet, you're basically getting rid of most. Um, of the classic like ultra processed foods too, right? That are going to be super palatable, you know, high in sugar and all of that, uh, low in fiber. Um, and ketogenic diets do um, actually uh, focus a lot on on uh, vegetable intake as well. You know, things like broccoli, greens, and so on. So, um, uh, which would be filling and high fiber. So there are a few reasons that one might lose weight in the short term, but as far as long term, just low carb diets in general don't seem to be that effective, and that's probably because they're harder to stick to in the long term. Um, I know, especially for a ketogenic diet, I don't know what you would order if you were to eat out at a restaurant, uh, like a, a salad with olive oil dressing. Um, I, I can't think of, or just plain steak or something, you know, like, like no, nothing on the side, no, no side of, uh, you know, potatoes or brown rice or, or whatever. Um, there's, there are pretty limited options. Me as a vegan, I feel like I would have way more options in any restaurant than some people on a ketogenic diet. Yeah, I guess that, I know we'll dive into this later, but I guess that sort of debunks the claims that <laughs> eating plant-based or vegan is restrictive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, before we dive into some of the issues that may arise from adopting this, this lifestyle, I'd love to pick your brain about the, the research and if there is any regarding a ketogenic diet with endurance athletes and what that looks like. Yeah, there's a little bit. Um, there was actually recently a study on, on um, race walkers, so like speed walking, which is the perfect sport to test that for, right? It's, it's low intensity, uh, but, but it's definitely endurance and uh, there actually didn't seem to be any benefit for keto. Um, hypothetically, if there was going to be a benefit for any sport, it would be for endurance because you do use fat as a, as a uh, fuel source, but it still seems that there isn't really an edge there. And when we look at strength athletes, we have data on like CrossFit athletes and uh, other forms of strength athletes. 
Uh, when you're adopting a keto diet, um, you actually seem to suffer as far as performance. Uh, you actually perform worse. Um, and, uh, and there's actually research on those CrossFit athletes I was mentioning where the size of, of their uh, lateral um, quadriceps muscle called the vastus lateralis actually shrunk a bit. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that's because they were necessarily losing muscle mass. It could have been the fluid mass from the you know, dumping glycogen uh, or using up the glycogen but still goes to show that it's not really providing any benefit there. And then as far as performance seems to be a detriment. Yeah, definitely. I love that. I think that's a, um, a really good service well, conversation that we had highlighting some of the reasons why people would adopt this sort of lifestyle before we talk a little bit about the, the increased risks of adopting this lifestyle. I'd love to give a practical example of what a day in the life of a ketogenic diet would look like traditionally in the Western form. Um, I know this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but what would that yeah. look like? <clears throat> so actually, I think that could segue very nicely into um, into talking about the potential risks of a ketogenic diet, because the t- traditional keto diet that is followed by most people is going to be high in saturated fat, really focused on animal products, animal fats, um, things like your meat, dairy, eggs, um, not that eggs are super high in saturated fat, but, but, uh, they are, you know, animal fat source. Uh, and then you might use some like, uh, plant-based oils, like olive oils, use a lot of vegetables as far as designing a whole menu. I mean, you can kind of mix and match in whatever you know way that you want. Um, a lot of people do the, you know, bulletproof coffee stuff and then, uh, and, and that as well, but a, a study from this year, um, by author Buren, uh, took 24 women with an average age of just under 24 put them on what a standard keto diet would be. Um, so again, focus more on, on the animal-based higher saturated fat foods, um, had a diet of 4% carbohydrates, 77% fat and 19% protein, and had them follow that for four weeks, followed by four weeks of the Swedish National Food Agency diet. So like the dietary guidelines in their area, uh, which was 44% carbs, 33% fat and 19% fat. Um, so they did, you know, four weeks of one and then four weeks of the other or vice versa. And they had a 15 week, uh, washout period in the middle. So that prevents any like carryover effect from the first phase to the second phase. And, um, and actually I have the quote right here, the, the low carb, high fat diet was based on meat, fish, seafood, eggs, high fat, dairy, coconut fat, olive oil, raspberries. So berries are usually included if, if any fruit are, um, avocado, nuts, and uh, above ground vegetables, such as, uh, broccoli. So that was their ketogenic diet. Um, and after some of them dropped out, so 17 out of the 24 finished the diet or finished the study. Uh, one of them moved to a different city. Six of them had side effects from the keto diet. So you know, either headache, fatigue, nausea, abdominal pain, or, or one of them actually felt depressed. Um, and these were all healthy women at baseline. So they were you know, a uh, healthy weight on average. They were, uh, you know, good uh, you know, blood pressures and, and other biomarkers. And they found that their LDL cholesterol, which uh, is a causal risk factor for cardiovascular disease, so higher LDL causes cardiovascular disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, their LDL about doubled. It almost doubled in the four, week, four weeks on the keto diet. And their apolipoprotein B, which is, or ApoB for short, which is an even better marker, jumped from 0.7 grams per liter, which is a great ApoB, to 1.20 grams per liter. So again, you know, on the verge of doubling, definitely more than a, you know, 50% increase. Um, and, uh, they actually had a small increase in triglycerides, which is kind of funny because a lot of keto proponents uh, typically suggest that, that, uh, um, you know, cutting out all the carbohydrates will drop triglycerides. Now they did see a reduction in, in glucose and insulin. We'll give them that. Um, but that was all with some weight loss, not a lot of weight loss, but a little bit of weight loss and weight loss usually also improves all of those biomarkers. So this goes to show that if you're a healthy overall person and you adopt a kind of standard Western keto, so I'm not talking about a plant-based keto where you're eating a lot of polyunsaturated fats, very low in saturated fats. I would actually suggest that's probably a pretty healthy way to eat if you wanted to. Um, but a standard kind of ketogenic diet focused a lot on animal-based foods, it seems to be a detriment almost across the board, especially for those really significant cardiovascular risk factors. Um, and so that is going to be a huge issue, um, you know, down the road, if you were to maintain those sorts of values. 
crazy that those sort of biomarkers are, are doubling, particularly the LDL cholesterol in, in yeah. just four weeks. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. It, it was just absolutely massive. Um, and then we actually have a, a 2013 meta-analysis of ketogenic diets um, versus low-fat diets for weight loss. And while, yes, people on keto diet might have lost some weight, their LDL actually also went up a bit. Um, and uh, so that's, again, problematic. And then, I mean, we can get into whenever you want, you know, comparisons between keto and plant-based, but it just, it just goes to show that if, you know, if you're going to do keto, going for the standard high saturated fat, high animal fat version of it is not going to be ideal. Definitely. I think you summarize that perfectly. I want to zoom in a little bit on the diabetes management before we talk about saturated fasts and stuff. Why do you think that the ketogenic diet is proposed for people with type two diabetes as a baseline treatment? Yeah, because, because a ketogenic diet or just low carb diets in general can really improve your blood sugar markers. Um, and that's because if you're not eating carbohydrates, your blood sugar is never going to rise. Or like it's pretty much as simple as that. And so if you have like a high hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of long-term blood sugar uh, management, um, you can bring that down for sure by going on a, say, a keto diet. The problem is it doesn't mean you've fixed the problem. Now with type two diabetes, it is possible in a lot of cases to put it into remission to, you know, um, to get to a point where you can eat carbohydrates and not have a problem. But if, if type two diabetes is a it's an issue with carbohydrate metabolism and you're not eating carbohydrates to manage it, right? To, to actually manage the, the uh, uh, values. How do you know you fix the problem? You can't. Um, and so insulin resistance is the problem. It's the fact that when you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugars rise, your pancreas produces insulin, which is going to travel through the bloodstream, bind to insulin receptors on say your, your liver, um, uh, or, you know, muscle cells. Um, and it's going to basically tell the cell, Hey, there's a bunch of sugar out here in the bloodstream, please take it and do something with it. But if you're insulin resistant, that signal is not getting sent through. And the problem is that on the inside of that cell, you have usually, um, like fatty breakdown products. So that could be from excessive, uh, body fat or visceral fat. Uh, it could potentially be from high saturated fat intakes. Um, that are, you know, quote unquote, gumming up the lock as if, you know, insulin's the key to the door. Um, that's the way that I've heard, you know, many people put it. I think it's a nice picture. Um, and so if you're adopting a keto diet where your saturated fat intake jacked up even further, yes, if you lose weight, you can improve to some degree, but you're still adding fuel to the fire with all that saturated fat that you're consuming. Um, that's still going to be problematic. So although you're not eating carbohydrates and your blood sugar is kept constant, it doesn't mean you fix the insulin resistance picture. Uh, and there's you know reason to believe that you might actually be making it even worse. It's almost like a quote unquote band-aid fix. Yeah. And then when you, I mean, we have research on plant-based diets showing improvements with very high carbohydrate intakes that actually demonstrates that you have better insulin sensitivity and that you're able to manage those carbohydrates uh, when you may have previously been diagnosed with type two diabetes. I guess from a point of health and longevity, we're trying to educate and empower the, the actual patient on taking control of their own health. That's going to be sustainable for them. And if we're looking from the research says and the practical element to a ketogenic diet, it is evident that it's really hard to sustain this way of eating in a normal quote unquote Western society. Yeah. And, and it's not that like, you know, some people might have an okay time with it. I, you know, based on just, personal you know, experience, it doesn't seem to be a huge portion. And based on the data we have on long-term weight loss, it doesn't seem to last all that long. Um, but I think we need to make people aware of this information so that they, if they do want to try keto or low carb, that they do it in a way that isn't going to throw their, you know, jack their heart disease risk up. Um, or, you know, maybe they, they want to try other dietary patterns, like I said, more plant-based uh, kind of pattern, uh, even if it is higher carb or uh, lower in fat, especially saturated fat, like there are a variety of different ways to do it. Um, but to think that keto is the only way and that it needs to be done in this specific way like that, that is just going to create issues. Definitely. And I think I have this conversation a lot with a lot of my colleagues about, or not colleagues, I work by myself, but a lot of the, the people that are, I talk about health and, and science and stuff with that 
our jobs as personal trainers is quite difficult because we're there as trying to get people weight loss results or mm -hmm. trying to get people physical aesthetic results. But to break it down further and, and talk about someone else, someone's health and longevity is not quote unquote marketable. It's not sexy. It's quite, it's quite hard for me as a PT to encourage someone to adopt this way of life. That's going to help them see results in five years time, as opposed to option B, which will help them see results in five weeks. So I think this conversation is extremely important and, and in empowering people to help understand how they can live better for longer. Yeah, it, it's, that's the challenge. So the challenge is just um, you know, trying to get people to consider the long-term risks or, or benefits of what they're doing. You know, I, we always want results right now or yesterday even, right? Um, so it makes it, it makes it a bit challenging. Love it. I think this is a fantastic segue into zooming in on saturated facts and what the increased consumption of these saturated fatty acids do in terms of disease yeah, so I mean, saturated fat is uh, saturated fat intake is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, just to really quickly kind of explain how is when you increase your saturated fat intake, you decrease the number of LDL receptors that you have that will pull the LDL cholesterol out of the bloodstream and, and you'll recycle it through the liver. Um, that's the really Cole's notes version of that. So as you're increasing saturated fat, you're going to decrease the ability to remove LDL cholesterol from your bloodstream. So blood cholesterol rises or blood LDL cholesterol rises. Um, that's what's going to lead to risk and you know, eventually lead to development of plaques uh, in the arteries that are going to you know, rupture off, cause a heart attack. It takes decades for that to happen, but that's kind of the process. Um, now, there are some studies, and I'm sure people listening will want to point them out, um, or meta-analyses showing that um, you know, saturated fat consumption isn't a problem or it doesn't raise risk. And there are some serious issues with that. Uh, for one, we have to understand that the risk uh, from saturated fat intake only seems to really occur when you go from less than 10% of total calories to more than 10% of total calories. So there's a threshold. If you take studies where people are consuming 12% of their calories from saturated fat versus say 15 or 16% of the calories, you've already peaked. Your risk is already up there. It's not getting any higher. And so it can appear that adding saturated fat isn't risky. Same thing at very low intakes, although we don't have a lot of studies comparing very low intakes. Um, but when you have that threshold of, you know, say you get someone at 8% or a group of people with 8% of, of calories coming from saturated fat versus like 12%, you're going to see that increase in risk. Um, now, the other big issue is a lot of the studies um, do what's called an over adjustment. So when you're adjusting in research, you're basically balancing those variables. You know, if you want to look at the association between red meat consumption and, and uh, heart disease, you want to make sure that you're only comparing smokers to smokers and non-smokers to non-smokers, because what if red meat eaters just eat or smoke more cigarettes, right? Like you, you want to make sure you can isolate those variables, um, but you can go too far with it. So with saturated fat, what some of the studies do is they adjust for LDL cholesterol values. So they essentially compare people with similar LDL cholesterol. Now, if saturated fat increases cardiovascular disease risk by raising your LDL cholesterol, but you make sure you're only comparing people with similar LDL cholesterol levels, you're never going to see an association between saturated fat and cardiovascular disease. And that's because people are going to have genetically different levels, right? Somebody could be genetically gifted and they eat more saturated fat, but end up with a lower LDL cholesterol than somebody who doesn't eat much saturated fat because they have a genetically higher level. Um, what we need to consider is that just relative to your baseline, increasing intake is detrimental. Um, so that, that would be uh, kind of the issue with um, saturated fat. And we have a, um, uh, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that was published in Cochrane about a year or two ago now. I think it was last year. Um, and, uh, and they, again, showed very clearly that that threshold effect of, you know, the 10% of calories, once you're above that, it, it balances out. And if you go from like 8% up to 10, you see this pretty striking increase in risk. And again, and that's based on randomized controlled trials. It's not even epidemiology. So, um, which a lot of people like to crap on for all sorts of reasons. Um, <laughs> not that they should, I mean, epidemiology is great. Uh, but uh, that would be kind of a quick explanation of, of saturated fat. 
it's interesting to see that the the research is pretty clear that it in, the ketogenic diet or this sort of dietary pattern increasing your uh, total calories from saturated fat increases your cardiovascular disease risk, which is in the top 10 leading cause of death around the globe. And I'm sure it's, yeah. I think it, is it number one in the, in the U S and it's number one in the U S I believe ischemic heart disease is number one worldwide. Um, in Canada, I think it's number two now behind cancer. Um, but it's, it's up there in most developed countries and worldwide it's huge. Regardless that it is definitely in the top 10, if not the top five. Yeah. So to have this sort of dietary pattern, it's not working in terms of disease yeah. management and disease risk. So we need to come back to the drawing board and, and decide what's going to, to help Absolutely. us from them. I'd love to talk a little bit about the pro-inflammatory foods that a ketogenic diet sort of consumes and how this affects someone's risk of developing disease over a period of time. I mean, so inflammation's kind of a funny one. Um, it gets thrown around a lot. And a lot of the times we consider uh, or a lot of people consider inflammation as being the driving force behind a lot of illnesses. Um, but actually, it seems that it might be a lot of these illnesses that actually cause inflammation. Um, so for, for example, cardiovascular disease, there are multiple inflammatory markers. Some of them actually may um, uh, increase risk of cardiovascular disease. But if you look at the epidemiology, just like uh, population data on uh, on cardiovascular disease, you'll see a correlation between uh, C-reactive protein or CRP, which is the primary inflammatory marker that's usually measured, and heart disease risk. Um, and it'll be pretty clear. But if you look at what are called Mendelian randomization studies, where you look at people with genetically higher CRP levels, um, they don't seem to have a higher risk. Same with if you use statins to lower somebody's cholesterol levels or LDL cholesterol levels, it seems to have a very similar effect regardless of if that person has a lot of inflammation or little inflammation. What seems to happen is the actual process of you know, developing heart disease is what leads to inflammation. Like there's an inflammatory response to those say LDL cholesterol particles and so on that causes this um, or is involved in this process of, of cardiovascular disease. So I, I think, and, and that's just one example, we can go through a, a bunch of examples, but in a lot of cases, it's, it's the disease process possibly leading to more inflammation than the inflammation itself being the cause of all these different diseases. That being said, inflammatory dietary patterns. So again, diets high in things like red meat, uh, a lot of like refined grains, processed sugars, um, those sorts of dietary patterns are associated with risk. Um, and, uh, and we have studies on like dietary inflammatory index, which is an index based on, or basically a scoring system based on how inflammatory your diet is and is associated with risk. Uh, but the mechanisms at play, while inflammation certainly may play a role, I don't think it's as big of a role as what a lot of, you know, people out there present. It's almost like what came first, the, the chicken or yeah, egg. Exactly. Okay. Now I'd love to zoom in on protein intake now and how a ketogenic sort of model of eating incorporates a higher percentage of protein intake than typically the Western diet. If we're consuming, you know, a lot of steaks, eggs, meats, et cetera, et cetera. Does this have an increased risk of disease based on an increased protein intake in the diet? So, um, so yeah, again, I want to just make clear that for the medical keto, it's very low in protein as well for the kind of conventional keto diet that's done nowadays, it's more moderate in protein, still not super high, but, but, you know, decently high, I suppose. Um, now with protein, there is again, a bit of a misconception that higher protein intake is what leads to um, higher risk of disease. And it seems to actually be um, more that it's the animal protein intake. Um, that seems to associate with disease. Now that again, doesn't mean that animal protein itself, like if you use a protein isolate um, that was based on animal protein would be problematic, but uh, I'll explain that in a little more detail in a second here. So um, there was a, uh, you know, I, I know one of the questions you'd, you'd sent me was about like red meat versus chicken versus plant protein. Well, there was actually a really interesting study in, in 2019 that was done um, where they, you know, took a bunch of participants, they split them into two groups, a low saturated fat group and a high saturated fat group. Um, they had uh, within each group, three different diets that were very similar, same amount of saturated fats, same amount of fiber, same amount of mono and polyunsaturated fats, um, or very close anyway. 
um, for four weeks on red meat, chicken, or plant protein, and they alternated between each one. Um, now, they and they use specifically lean meats, uh, like lean red meats. Um, and they found that both red meat and chicken led to higher LDL cholesterol than plant protein. So the question is, well, how did that happen if you were matching up saturated fat intake? And one of the reasons is probably um, actually the cholesterol content. So that, that may have you know, put it over the edge and, and raised uh, cholesterol a little bit or really raised uh, LDL cholesterol a little bit. So that just kind of hints at where this idea of, of like protein possibly being or animal protein possibly being more detrimental comes from independent of its saturated fat intake. Um, now, looking at actual disease risk, a really great study was by Huang in 2020. Uh, this looked at for over 400,000 participants and they were looking at animal protein intake and plant protein intake, a, a variety of different foods. And they found that, you know, unsurprisingly, higher plant protein intake led to a reduction in risk of overall mortality. But what's most interesting is they did a substitution analysis where they're looking at what happens if you replace just 3% of your calories from various animal protein sources with plant protein sources, uh, and what would happen to your risk. And they found that replacing just 3% of your calories from like red meat protein, for example, uh, with the plant protein, reduce your risk of overall mortality and a variety of different diseases. Uh, for even white meat, there was reduction of risk in certain, um, certain outcomes. For women, I believe it was uh, actually for all-cause mortality as well. Um, and this was after adjusting for saturated fat, fiber, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, other dietary variables. So this was basically isolating out the impact of the fact that it was, you know, a animal protein source versus, you know, a plant protein source. Again, that doesn't mean that it's the protein, like if you use a protein powder, it was going to lead to that risk. What it tells us is that there are compounds inherent to these sources, independent of its saturated fat content, independent of, you know, um, I can't remember if they adjusted for cholesterol, they might have, uh, but independent of its uh, other fatty acids and, and fiber. Um, and that might be, maybe it's the heme iron in there. Maybe it's the other you know, inflammatory compounds you're talking about that are in there. Um, there's a, a variety of other compounds in these foods that might also accrue risk. And we see very similar things across a variety of different studies. Like there was another study in 2020 by Shen um, that did a substitution analysis, but this time they substituted 5% uh, of calories from various protein sources with carbohydrates and replacing animal proteins with carbohydrates, again, after adjusting for a lot of those dietary uh, variables was beneficial. So to go against this whole low carb narrative, literally replacing animal protein with carbohydrates seemed to, to improve the case. Um, and then, you know, there was a, another study that uh, just came out uh, in earlier in 2021 that didn't adjust for all those dietary variables. So that's more of a real look at what happens if you just replace certain foods with others. Uh, and they were looking specifically at protein rich foods and basically across the board, the plant foods, like, you know, nuts, especially um, like whole grains um, uh, were beneficial if replacing you know, red meat, processed meat, eggs, even at one serving a week, as little as one serving a week, which is just absurd. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the benefit just got much, much larger at, uh, at, you know, daily servings. So that's like, just looking at protein, it's, it's incredibly consistent that animal sources of protein, again, I don't want to say it's specifically the, the fact that it has more protein, but animal sources of protein seem to be detrimental when compared to plant sources of protein, which is why the question of compared to what is so important when we're looking at research. You can't just say X food increases risk or X food decreases risk. You gotta look at compared to what? Compared to I don't know, Oreo cookies and Twinkies or compared <laughs> to you know, uh, uh, brown rice and quinoa and, and you know, black beans or whatever. For my Australian based listeners, sorry, this is a bit off, off topic. What is, it, what is a Twinkie? Oh, you don't, you don't know? Um, I, know, I know what a Twinkie is, but I'm not sure that uh, all my friends in Australia would know what a Twinkie is. Oh, it's like this. It's just, it's like the classic, like gross junk food type. Like it's like the classic super unhealthy. It's like got cream in it and it's a little like breaded thing. I've never <laughs> had one in my life. It's just everybody here at least knows what they are. I guess for context for, for people listening at home, it is almost like a Boston bun. Yeah. But, okay. That's similar. Yeah, but yeah. rolled inside. 
anyway, a little bit off topic. I just thought that to, it would be good to paint some context for that. Now, I guess zooming in on plant protein in particular and why it has shown to decrease risk of, of disease development, what components of a plant-based diet or, or the plant-based protein in particular makes it better digested and leads to better health, health outcomes from consuming these foods? So for digestibility, um, actually, if anything, the argument kind of favors animal protein in a lot of cases, but when you're talking about cooked plant foods or um, like uh, mildly or minimally processed foods, the digestibility is pretty much the same. Um, the problem is when, when proponents of animal protein want to say that animal protein is more digestible, they're typically looking at comparisons to like raw legumes and stuff like that, which isn't what we eat. You know, when you cook them, you increase the digestibility. Um, uh, but that aside, it's, there's a variety of factors. There's um, the fiber, uh, there's some research suggesting that polyphenol content, that might be one reason that things like, um, you know, teas are so healthy for you. Um, there's a, a whole host of these, you know, phytochemicals that we don't haven't even identified uh, a lot of them. We just call them this group of, you know, phytonutrients or phytochemicals because there's so many of them. Um, they're, they're just, a, and they're typically higher if you're talking about fattier sources, typically higher in polyunsaturated fats, which do the exact opposite of saturated fats where they increase LDL receptor activity to uh, pull more LDL cholesterol out of the bloodstream. Um, yeah, there, there's just a, a variety of, of mechanisms at play. Love it. And I, I guess zooming in again on the, on the plant-based diet, are there any, and, and highlighting the reasons why someone would choose to adopt a ketogenic dietary pattern in the first place, are there any specific studies that zoom in on plant-focused or plant-predominant diets and addressing the the things that we spoke about before in regards to diabetes, weight loss, chronic yeah. disease prevention? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for starters, just on weight loss, because that's kind of the, the crown jewel of, of keto, it sort of seems, um, there was a metabolic ward study uh, that was conducted uh, or published earlier this year, it was conducted last year, I believe, uh, by Kevin Hall. And it was a two-week crossover trial. So all the participants, they did both the keto and the plant-based diet. Now the keto was high fat, again, animal-based. The um, plant-based was low fat, high carb, you know, obviously plants. And it wasn't even a, what I would consider a super, super healthy plant-based diet. Like there were a fair amount of refined carbohydrates and things like that in there. And basically they were testing this whole hypothesis that drives a lot of the keto claims around what's called the carb insulin model of obesity, where, um, you know, they think that, that by reducing carbohydrates, reducing insulin um, uh, production, that you would uh, not store as much fat or make you more uh, satiated. Uh, you didn't take in less uh, calories uh, versus the other model, which is more based on calorie density. Um, or, you know, uh, yeah, because plant foods are, are lower in, in calorie density typically, so you wouldn't eat as much. Um, and so, uh, what they did when oh, they locked them basically in a room, like they, they were volunteers and they were you know, stuck in a room for the period of the study living, living there for a month, basically in their own, uh, in a hospital. Um, and they would, you know, monitor everything they ate. They knew everything that they would eat. Um, they weighed them and did various, um, you know, blood tests and things throughout. Um, and they actually found that at the, or, and they were allowed to eat as much as they want. Let's be clear of that too. Just certain foods, but as much as you want. Uh, and if the keto diet was superior and more filling, they would eat less. Right? Uh, but they actually found that those eating the plant-based diet ate significantly less and they ended up losing, um, um, or they ended up actually losing about the same amount of weight as the keto group. But when they look at um, body fat percentage loss versus lean mass loss, the keto group didn't actually lose much body fat. Um, it was, they had a more rapid weight loss, but it, it kind of started tapering out um, after the initial portion, like the initial week or so, whereas the, um, the plant-based group had a more of a, a steady kind of weight loss. Um, and they ended up at the end of two weeks being about the same, same, uh, drop in weight, but the plant-based group lost predominantly fat. Um, at the same time, uh, the plant-based diet lowered LDL cholesterol and ApoB compared to the keto diet. Um, and so that kind of, again, goes back to our, our discussion of heart disease. Um, on top of that, I mean, we have the broad study as a plant-based diet intervention, a randomized controlled trial as well. Um, and that had uh, what was considered to be the um, greatest weight loss ever, you know, achieved in a, in a, it was a year long, I believe, um, 
or they followed up at, at a year, I should say, um, the greatest uh, weight loss ever seen in a, um, in a dietary intervention that did not uh, mandate exercise or calorie restriction. Um, and the, the weight loss was maintained uh, through about one year or relatively maintained through one year. Um, and then when we're talking about things like diabetes, like Neil Bernard has some uh, like 74 week randomized controlled trial showing benefit there. We have tons of um, epidemiology on, on uh, uh, dietary patterns, especially uh, plant centric dietary patterns and, uh, and type two diabetes risk. Um, it's, it's uh, the, the data we have for diabetes, especially is pretty strong for plant-based diets. So remember you can improve your markers while still eating carbohydrates um, which is, is, you know, really showcasing that you've improved insulin sensitivity. I'm blown away. I think that's, that's incredible. And I guess for people that it's a little bit closer to home, um, in re relation to weight loss, mm -hmm. I want to zoom in on the component of the study that spoke about consuming calories until you're satiated, until you're full yeah. eat as much as you want. Why do you think that the plant-based component ate fewer calories? for greater volumes as opposed to the other group yeah well just you compare things like meat or butter or you know those sorts of a lot of the fattier animal foods um they're going to not have fiber for starters so you're not gonna have fiber there it's not gonna be as filling uh whereas you're compared to um plant foods whether that's your your fruits vegetables um, whole grains, even refined grains in, in a lot of cases, um, they're going to have more fiber, lower calories per gram or lower, less calories per bite. Um, and, and it's just going to fill you up more. You're not going to be able to overeat as, as easily as you would be if you were on the, um, you know, the animal based keto diet. I think that's a really practical element that needs to be included in this conversation. Cause if people don't take anything out of the conversation, but that it's that we need to start filling our plates with an abundance of whole plant foods yeah, like, more often. That's, yeah. That's the thing. It's not, it's not even about the, you know, the hundred percent plant-based versus the keto or carnivore diet or whatever. Um, I think other than the carnivores, I think everyone can agree that, you know, filling your plate with more, plant foods is generally a good thing. Well, anybody who's evidence-based at least can agree on that. You know, even if you're keto, I'm sure a lot of them would agree that, you know, having that side of, or a large side, I should say, of like broccoli and like a salad and that is a good thing. Definitely. And I think particularly us here in Australia, I haven't looked at the statistics recently. I think based on the last census in about 2016, there was under 10% of adults were consuming the recommended daily amount of fruits and vegetables. So we're not even there at that conversation yeah. yet. We need to start having a broader conversation regarding our overall consumption of fruits, vegetables, whole plant foods before we can, you know, start nitpicking reasons of, of certain specific studies. Yeah. And, and like, if we look at the United States, um, the average fiber intake last I checked was like 16 grams a day. And like the minimum recommendation for women is 28 for men is 35. Like, it's just, I, I get more than their entire intake in like breakfast. Um, you know, it's, it's like easily, like not even close. I could have a low fiber breakfast for me and probably, you know, smash that uh, by a lot. So you know, it's a huge problem here in Canada. I'm not sure what the averages are. It's probably maybe a little bit higher or something, but not going to be drastically different either. Crazy, crazy. I, I absolutely love that conversation regarding the ketogenic diet, why people would choose to adopt this and that versus a, a plant-based approach and how a plant-based approach um, is just as beneficial, if not superior for a lot of the things that we spoke about. I'm cautious about unpacking this can of worms Dr. Nagra, because it, it is a whole conversation in itself, but I think it really, you know, emphasizes our point regarding a plant-based diet and that's relation to antibiotic resistance and our overconsumption of, of animal protein in particular. I guess it's a, a greater conversation in relation to what is happening on a, on a legislative place mm -hmm. and keeping up with demand and things like that in terms of feeding these animals medication so they don't get sick. So we can keep up with the, the demand for, for the meat consumption. What is antibiotic resistance in a nutshell and, and how is it affecting us as humans? Yeah, so first I just want to preface it by saying with regard to its use in agriculture, I have a pretty base level understanding of that. You know, I have an understanding, but it's not, it's not uh, you know, an area I've, I've taken a deep dive on. 
Um, but what antibiotic resistance is, is, you know, as you use more antibiotics, or as we as a population, and including the, the animal population, use more antibiotics, uh, the bacteria that they're targeting can actually mutate uh, eventually and develop ways to um, evade those antibiotics. So, you know, eventually it comes to a point where those antibiotics are no longer effective for certain bacteria, those bacteria become resistant to them. Now, the more that we use them, uh, the more that we use antibiotics, the, the greater chance there is of that happening. Now, we need antibiotics. They are, you know, uh, along with, you know, vaccines you were mentioning earlier, they're one of the, you know, greatest achievements in medicine uh, as far as treating infectious disease. Um, and we don't have a lot of new ones being developed all the time. So we really need to, we really need to figure out ways to minimize or to, to you know, use it when it's needed, but minimize needless usage of antibiotics and, and obviously there are uh with regard to animal agriculture a simple shift would be you know towards plant agriculture again you know we, we've touched on this a lot um uh, even when we're talking about things like regenerative ag and and you know uh, grass-fed meats and that they actually require more land and and in certain ways can be more environmentally destructive so there's like other issues with there there's issues on both sides whether you're going with the factory farm version or you're going with the um the you know regenerative or grass-fed version um and you know where where we can solve a lot of the issues around that by shifting more to our, towards plant-based agriculture um so so that would be kind of a really basic response to that and i i can definitely obviously go into more of the environmental stuff at a, at a later time as well uh but with regard to anti antibiotic resistance i'm not too familiar with the exact types and and you know all the specifics around that that are used yeah i think the environmental impacts is a whole other conversation yeah. in itself <laughs> there's definitely a lot to unpack there but i think um that was just a, a great understanding of what it is and how we're leading in our western society and i think simon hill mentioned it and summed it up perfectly in our podcast that our healthcare system at the moment is one of sick care so we need to start looking more at prevention and and making changes on a personal consumer level um, to help deal with these impacts. Mm -hmm. I agree. Matthew, There's not much I don't agree with Simon on. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon I've listened to your, you yourself and his podcast about five or six times. That's an absolute <laughs> we, we got another one. We got another one in the works, uh, or at least we've discussed uh, briefly. So we'll see. Love it. You both are gurus in this space and, and making a big impact. Uh, I definitely appreciate it. Now, Matthew, coming to the end of the podcast, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're seeing in clinic and how you're having these conversations with people on a personal level regarding making practical shifts towards a plant-based diet. We've spoken about earlier in the podcast about the, the potential benefits that this dietary pattern can happen, but practicality is another conversation. It's another thing in itself, getting people to adhere to these. So what conversations are you having with, with people in relation to helping them adhere to a plant-based sort of approach or, or eating more plants? Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of depends on, on who we're talking to. I, I get a lot of patients who are already, you know, plant predominant or they're vegan or, or vegetarian. And, and, you know, they just want to really maximize their nutrition, get all the benefit that they can out of it. And those are, those are the really easy ones I find to, to work with because it's usually pretty small changes. You know, we might, we might tweak a few things or, or I might make a few suggestions and they can take them or leave. Them, right based on how much benefit uh, they would get out of that um but then i get patients with cardiovascular disease you know high cholesterol high blood pressure i get um uh, patients with type 2 diabetes and these are the ones who i really go into detail on like okay this is the research on because i do have a lot of time with my patients these aren't like quick 15 minute visits you know the initial visit will be like an hour long so we'll go into the detail like this is why this happens and these are the you know the approaches that we can take to uh, minimize risk and, and yet dietarily especially for those two conditions is typically a plant-centric uh, diet um and but i'll say you know for each step you take there is a benefit we don't need to go all in overnight we can start with smaller steps um and you know you can find where as we move along where you think you'd be comfortable with long term obviously you know the further you go the maybe the more benefit you can get there um and so i usually start with just simple breakfast let's just let's just figure breakfast out uh you know we can try oatmeal. uh you know, there's you make like a healthy toast with like nut butter or avocado um 
you got smoothies, you got tofu scrambles. Um, you know, I'll throw a bunch of ideas out there. We'll talk about how to prepare them and, and, uh, and that would be done. Okay. Spend a couple weeks, spend a month if you want, whatever, however much time you think you need. We'll come back. We'll see how that's going. If it's going great. Awesome. We'll move on to lunch. If, uh, if you're struggling a bit, okay, how can we correct that? You know, make it a little easier for you. Then we do lunch. Then we do dinner. Maybe we do snacks in there somewhere. Like we, we take it one step at a time like that. I, I, um, and on top of that, I look at what they're already eating and modify accordingly. So like if they're, they're used to the pasta with the white pasta with like uh, meat sauce or something, well, they get a whole wheat pasta or a legume based pasta with uh, tomato sauce, maybe throw some lentils in the sauce if you wanted a little meatier and, and to really just uh, pump up the nutrition, toss them, chop up some veggies, and throw them in there. Like it, I can work with what they are already eating to just revamp the ingredients used essentially. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully it's something that they still enjoy. You can spice it and flavor it in the same way you used to, and, uh, and usually get a pretty good experience out of it. So, um, that's sort of the approach I take and I find that it works, but there are some people who want to go all in. They're just like, just give it all to me and let's just go and okay. Hey, we can do that. I'm, I'm happy to. And, and, you know, sometimes uh, they're successful. Sometimes, um, they come back to me and, and it was a bit too much too fast. And then the one thing I always warn those individuals about is that if you are really jacking up fiber intake from like zero to a hundred, um, you might experience some gastrointestinal, uh, you know, uh, some bloating gas, that sort of thing, um, uh, right off the bat. So I do typically suggest the slower, uh, transition. I think that's a, a fantastic summary there that, you know, the old, cliche saying that slow and steady wins the race it does and and the science shows that even small incremental changes make a big big difference in the grand scheme of things yeah for sure i agree now matthew just to wrap up the podcast i i'd like to firstly say thank you so much for your time today i have thoroughly enjoyed diving into the science and, and hearing your perspective of things that you're seeing in clinic what is your main message and why do you get up each and every day to do the things that you do um I think that there is an underestimation of the amount of power that we have of our own health. Um, we can't cure everything. We can't prevent everything, but we can do our best to really reduce our risk. You know, it's the reason we wear seatbelts. It's not because it's going to hundred percent protect us, but it's because we're going to reduce our risk of you know dying in a car accident. The same thing with our diet. We can drastically reduce our risk of many of the most common causes of death or disability worldwide. Um, by just simply eating more plants. Like it's really that easy, you know, instead of getting the, the full fat dairy milk, you get the soy milk. Instead of getting the, the eggs, you get the just egg, which I recently tried and is awesome. Um, so, and, and then of course you load up on the fruits and veggies. So you have control over your health um, to a pretty large degree. And I want you to have the information at your fingertips to be able to, to acknowledge that and make those changes. So that's why I do what I do. And, and, uh, you know, I, I really want to help the planet. So our kids and our grandkids have a place to live. And then, um, of course I want to keep the animals, um, you know, safe and healthy while I'm at it. Yeah. Beautifully said. And I think I've said it in almost every podcast that I've done that adopting this lifestyle pattern has drastic impacts on your health, the health of our beautiful planet, and obviously preserving the lives of our animals. So if you're choosing just one of those avenues, you're, you're naturally having an impact on all three. So I think it's, um, it's definitely the way forward. Absolutely. Now, Matt, where can people get in contact with you if they'd love to find out more information and follow the work that you do? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram. So it's at Dr. Matthew Nagra, so at dr. Matthew Nagra. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Matthew Nagra. I'm on Facebook, uh, same, just my name. Um, I post, like I said, most most actively on Instagram, but I post to all those platforms. I have a website, drmatthewnagra.com, although I'm going to be making some changes to it soon. Uh, all of my podcasts are there, uh, so this one will be listed there as well. Um, any uh, longer articles I might write sometimes I'll throw up on there if you know if they don't fit into an Instagram post or something <laughs> and, uh, um, I've got a couple recipes up there although I need to post a few more of those uh, so if you have any any um, you know questions for me message me through social media or um, there's a mail link on my website you can email me there um, as well if you're in British Columbia Canada by any chance and you're listening to this podcast uh, you can always see me as a patient as well I love it. And I'll have all those links in the show notes for you guys, as well as the links to some of the studies that we spoke about in the chat today. 
Dr. Nagra, thank you so much for your time. It was it was incredible and a real pinch me moment listening to your podcast and the wealth of knowledge that you are and how you store all this information in that brain of yours is incredible. So thank you so much for your work. Uh, it's nonstop. I was like, when you're always looking at it, it's not too hard to, uh, to pull it out. <laughs> I love it. Have a great day, my friend. You too. Well, there you have it, folks. We come to the close of yet another episode of the For Our Health podcast. Firstly, I want to say thank you to Dr. Nagra for shedding light on some important topics and some real hot topics in the realm of nutrition at the moment. It's so liberating to know that there is another option and our planet, our health and the animals' lives depend on our food choices and the impact that we can have by adopting a more plant-based diet for all of the above reasons is astronomical. When we talk from a point of sustainability, it's quite hard to adhere to a ketogenic diet for the remainder of your life and to know that there is another way that is more sustainable and better for your health, the planet and the animal's health is is so liberating. If you'd like to know more about this, definitely head over to Dr. Nagra's Instagram page and give it a follow. He constantly uploads the latest nutrition scientific papers and really makes it easy to digest, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. As usual, friends, the Euphoria Health podcast is not intended to be medical advice and is advice of a general nature only. So if you're wanting to make changes or modifications to your current lifestyle, do so under the guidance of a health professional. Well, that's all for episode 96 of the podcast. What a journey it's been. To think that we're nearing 100 episodes is is just mind-blowing, but I can't wait to continue to share all of this wisdom with you all, and I'll catch you next time on the For Our Health podcast. Have a great week, friends. Bye for now.